This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is the bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 1 of my podcast, One for the Road. Thank you so much for your lovely messages. I want you to know that I'm truly grateful for all of your ongoing support. This week's guest is amazing. She is a writer, speaker, curator and campaigner. And she is always brutally honest about her experience of her recent loss of her husband, Greg. Today she talks really openly about her relationship with alcohol and I'm so grateful she has shared this with us on today's episode. So please welcome the lovely Stacey Hill. Morning Stacey, so lovely to see you. Last time I saw you was in Southampton. We had a lovely cup of coffee together and we had a long old chat and we both said at the end that we could have talked for hours. So we're we're here now carrying on that conversation. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I am actually good today and um, yeah, it was so lovely to meet you and have those very, very quick conversations it's so it's so lovely to meet people in person isn't it people that you connect with online when you meet them in real life you're like oh god like these people are are friends these are these are important people so yeah so great to talk to you again today and actually get a chance to talk in more depth I know we we did go deep as well didn't we yeah straight off one meeting and we was like (laughs) like swimwear so um, we got a lot to talk about um but uh as usual I love to talk about your past with alcohol and what it was like for you back in the day okay yeah so back in the day um I would say I had a very oh inverted commas normal relationship in like 90s Britain if that makes sense so I there was alcohol around when I was 
when I was growing up, but in a really, um, you know, just adults having a glass of wine with with dinner if we were out at a restaurant kind of kind of way. And also, I don't, I don't know how I, how old I would have been, but that whole thing of having like a tiny little thimble of wine mixed with lemonade when you're a certain age and you feeling really grown up. And then I had all the, the what I would consider usual, maybe this is just where I grew up or how I grew up, but that kind of early teens getting that, um, that excitable thing about like having your first sips of alcohol. And I remember my first, my first alcohol that I had that was not moderated by like a parent over dinner as like a little sip was um was Bacardi we went me and my friends like we must have been I don't know 13 and we went to one of their neighbor's parties that had a bar in their house which was like madness and we just got hold of this bottle of Bacardi and ended up drinking it all and then throwing up in the toilets and like that kind of nonsense that goes on in in teen years like just like stupid things that you'll never do again or well I know I never did again um and then I don't know then I when I was older going to clubs I would drink never really to like not not mad amounts I don't think even in my younger years I could tolerate a huge amount but it was always really normal, I suppose, in the sense that everybody around me was also doing the same of my age. And yeah, university, again, same kind of thing, really. I would say that my relationship with alcohol changed. It kind of carried on that on that trajectory up until, I would say, when the pandemic began. Yeah. So what you really had was what you could eschew as being quite a relatively normal relationship with alcohol where you would go out and have a drink and then go periods of time where you wouldn't even think about it oh absolutely and there was uh we never ever had alcohol in the house yeah uh, uh, when I was growing up it just it just wasn't a thing it wasn't like even at that point it wasn't that we ever like the adults of the house had a glass of wine with dinner even it just wasn't it just wasn't in the house actually I say our my relationship began with alcohol my difficult relationship with alcohol began at the pandemic that's not actually true my husband greg was diagnosed with terminal bowel cancer in the end of 2016 and he was he was diagnosed in a&e and then he had a two week stint in hospital where they did some operations on him and it was really absolutely overwhelming because it wasn't expected at all and when that was going on, I was basically living at the hospital for the hours that I was allowed there. I had two small children at the, t- at the time who were one and three. And I would they were just living at my, my parents' house while I was at the hospital dealing with this absolute nightmare. And I would come back after 12 hours at the hospital and I would take some sleeping pills with two glasses of wine uh, because I was so petrified so wired so in another world it was like this it was a reaction it was like t- I just had to numb things I couldn't you know going back and seeing my children's faces I it was like I just I I couldn't sleep I was running on I I think I lost a stone in in two weeks yeah I didn't eat I um I couldn't sleep 
And I was desperately trying to knock myself out from a very, very nightmarish situation. And I think that's that's actually when it beca- it started to become a little bit of a crutch for me. I mean, that's the thing. That came out of nowhere, didn't it? Um, going into A&E. And yeah. You sprung with that news. It's like you, you go into this automatic sort of um, thing where it's, how do you cope with that? And, and we're all sort of trained to think, well, by numbing it out. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was in, it was like, a, it's really hard to explain but it's it's a trauma response yeah. and it's and it's total fight or flight and i think your body does some of its own natural numbing itself because it can't take on everything that you're being told everything you're having to experience and you're right there's this it is maybe a cultural thing to be like okay that that whole thing it's a lot like that kind of that mummy culture of like, oh, seven o'clock, it's bedtime. Like you've survived the day with your children. Now's the time to numb out. Like this is your t- this is your time. Just obliterate those feelings that you're feeling. You say it's seven o'clock. I, I've um, worked in several houses that it's been when they pick the kids up and the mummies <laughs> come round and it's half past three. <laughs> and the prosecco comes out, you know. And the then prosecco, got, yeah. oh, the, the drink, the drink of young mothers. Absolutely, yeah. I hear you. <laughs> but then, you know, I often thought was what happens when all these mums go home. What is their relationship then like with alcohol? Do they stop and do they have a cup of tea and do they bath the kids or do they carry on? And that's always an interesting perspective. Yeah, I I think is it it is interesting thinking about like drinks as a whole to do with motherhood as well. Of I didn't even touch a, a cup of coffee until I had my first daughter, um, and I then was in this situation where I was feeling like I'm just exhausted. I can't cope, and I then it was then I decided that to try a first cup of coffee just for the energy for the caffeine. Yeah. And that was it. And like, that's a, that's nearly nine years ago. And I live off coffee, literally live. Uh, uh, I drink an astounding amount, like between 6am and midday. And it is that same kind of thing. It's, it's a different thing to alcohol, mm. but it, it's that reliance on something else to take you out of your, yeah. out of your head. And, and I think I definitely I think maybe when I had children as well, uh, maybe when before Greg was diagnosed, oh, see, it's all coming back to me now. Before Greg was diagnosed, but he was obviously very ill, but no one could tell him what was wrong with him. I had two small children, one of them who had horrific colic and just never, ever stopped crying. I had postnatal depression because of that. And the fact that like my husband was gradually becoming more introverted and more ill and no one could tell him what was wrong. And I felt like our lives were falling apart. And I think I definitely fell into that whole wine o'clock thing. I mean, and it's so prevalent. It's not even spoken about in hushed tones. It's, it's written on wine glasses in Tesco. Yeah. (laughs) It's, It's really, really accepted. And it's, it's everywhere. It's on social media. It's funny memes. It's that kind of that like secret, like that kind of roll your eyes. Ha ha ha. This is the reality, but it's so ingrained now. And I do wonder what goes on behind closed doors. Like you said, it's, it's one thing to have a sociable drink with friends to 
to kind of commemorate, <laughs> commiserate, celebrate being parents. I don't know. But it's, yeah, what, what happens be- behind closed doors? Yeah, and it's home. a cumulative as well. Uh, and like what you were saying about lockdown, what I found was I was sober then. So I was watching it from the other side, but equally it was difficult for me. But I was so grateful that I was sober because I thought, how would I get the amount of alcohol that I <laughs> drink in the house? Because oh, yeah. everything was shut. Do you know what I mean? So I used to yeah. do my daily runs and hide the little miniature bottles in my coat sleeves and in my briefcase. And, you know, um, but all of a sudden lockdown came. It was March. It was hot. People were out. I remember the yummy mummies out in their bikinis, um, all on house party doing this huge thing. It's like a big gathering. And it was a bit of a holiday feeling because all of a sudden, all the responsibility from work was taken away. And although there was all the worry around there, it did have that holiday feel. And um, it wasn't long before I saw people beginning to do that more and more, drink earlier and earlier. And then I thought, oh, I'll tell you what, this is going to lead into something quite serious really so it's that with greg being diagnosed as well and you dealing with all the trauma there how did your drinking escalate in lockdown i would say that the the very beginning of lockdown was literally uh like a 360 degree turn on my alcohol because the situation that we were in was slightly different in that Greg was supposed to he'd had a break of chemo at this point he was like nearly three three years into his diagnosis and he was he was literally about to restart chemo on the 23rd of March which was the beginning of the lockdown and we had a phone call from his oncologist that said look we know what's happening here we are basically shutting oncology down your treatment is cancelled and uh indefinitely we don't know what's going to happen you if you get this disease because he he had bowel cancer but it had spread at that point primarily to his lungs and obviously with covid being a respiratory disease he had said if you get covid you will die he was he was as blunt as that this is this is about two weeks before lockdown began and he said all four of you being the two of us and our two children need to shield all four of you you must not go outside. And and that sounds really extreme now because we're kind of so many years in, but you have to think about what it was like at that point yeah. when we were we were watching Italy and them making decisions about who they were going to save. And I was thinking they will never save Greg. Greg. If Greg, if Greg gets this and he has to go to hospital, they will never save, they will never choose him. He has stage four cancer. They will he, he will be left to die. I was also really scared because I have quite chronic asthma, obviously a respiratory disease as well. And I thought, what if I get it? I'm, uh, I wasn't in the shielding group, but I was definitely in a high risk category and I was petrified. I remember watching the, the broadcast of Boris Johnson, you know, the one where he said people will die. Yeah, And it just put the fear of God into people. And I remember watching that at my parents' house and having a panic attack as I watched it and running upstairs thinking, I, I can't die. I cannot die because my children will be orphans yeah. because Greg is going to die. I can't die from this. And I started to hatch these mad plans of like always carrying, even though we were shielding as we went in, I was thinking about if I get it, I need to write 
something on my arm in permanent marker. Again, this, I mean, this sounds madness now. It really does. Sat here in 2022. But the beginning, I was going to write on my arm, my husband has terminal cancer. You have to save me because I've got small children. Like, and that was the fear that was, that took me into that beginning of the pandemic. So we just shut up shop basically. And what we couldn't, we could, you know, I missed all of the queuing in, um, queuing outside supermarkets. I missed a one-way system. I didn't see any of that. So we were having to rely on other people to bring us food, which we were so lucky that we had a support system that would do that. But what we found is that people knew our situation. And when they bought us food, they also bought us alcohol. As I, d- I wasn't asking for alcohol, yeah, but they bought it with them. As and it was that gesture. I suppose it's like, what do you bring? What do you bring to a party? Not that this was a party, but like, mm. it, it's a contribution, isn't it? Of like, oh, how how am I going to show you? You know, and people bought all the classics of like alcohol, chocolate, flowers. Yeah. Those were the three things that that people, you know, if you're in a supermarket, you're like, shit, I really need, I want to show these people that I'm thinking about them. Those are the three you go to. And um, it's also not a coincidence that I put on a lot of weight during uh, lockdown because, because of the amount of stuff that people bought us. Cakes. We all did. Yeah, cakes, biscuits, everything. <laughs> and uh, and obviously, Prosecco. Yeah. That was the uh, the the drink of choice that got bought to our house again and again and again. And um, Greg didn't drink; he was never ever a drinker. So I was I was here with bottles and bottles of alcohol. I really, I really, really do mean bottles. That, like you said, it was that it was that summer. We we didn't have anywhere to go other than our garden. Luckily, we we have a garden. So we did nothing but sit around and I did nothing but drink Prosecco, basically, yeah. because yeah. it was it was a mixture of that kind of blocking the harsh reality of what was going on. And like, you know, people, they're saying this is a three week thing and then it getting extended and it getting extended and the death toll going up and the madness of being in, locked in your home with two children. I did. I did no homeschooling whatsoever. Not even one hour of homeschooling through the whole pandemic. I I just couldn't. I could. I just thought I'll have a breakdown. I will have a nervous breakdown if I'm expected to also be a teacher. So we just uh, we just hung out basically, and um, my alcohol intake, um, yeah, became a way to numb out what was going on. But also I did tap into that whole holiday thing that everyone else was. And you saw it again and again, didn't you? Of like people, you know, a bottle of wine was opened at midday with your lunch to sit in your garden. Because it's like this incredible summer that suddenly happened in March. And it was all okay. I mean, that, you know, what else could we do? There was nothing to do except eat and drink. Yeah, but you, you as well, on top of that, had the worry of Greg, your relationship, where that was going. And and let's be real, alcohol does the job good and proper, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I was petrified inside. I, I And there was also the weight of this. Is, so Greg is going to die. We're three years in. You know, I'm doing the maths thinking there's like the stats are, if you are diagnosed with stage four cancer, 
you've got a 5% chance of getting to five years. So what if he dies in the pandemic? These are the last years of his life mm. and he's basically trapped in our house, which in, in some ways was good because obviously we got to spend that time together, but it was stressful time. It, it, it Some of it was lovely, but some of it most certainly wasn't. And I... I think I also used alcohol at that time to kind of pretend we were somewhere else. It was, I, you know, talking about my past with alcohol, it was all, it was always positive in the fact that feeling of like, oh, I'm going out. I'm, you know, I'm with friends. It was like a party thing. I never, when I was younger, I never used alcohol as, as that way to numb the feelings. It was always associated with fun. Mm. So, I definitely used it in that way as well, which was I I desperately need to feel happy. And alcohol did, did you know, like, let's be real. It did provide that. It, it made me feel good at that time of like, I'm sat in the sun, I'm drinking Prosecco, it's going down very nicely. I can pretend I'm somewhere else. I can pretend this is something else other than a global pandemic with my terminal husband kind of getting thinner and thinner. It's hard to imagine. It, do you know, it, it's hard to remember. It's weird. Like, I don't I don't know if other people, I don't know if you feel like this about the pandemic. I feel like I can't remember a lot of it. Like a dream, like yeah. Lo- yeah, like the lockdowns. Yeah. But do you know what, Stacey, I was going to ask you as well, was that we all kind of um, went into our own isolation in our heads, I think. And yeah. like, so Greg, he was probably wondering about where where he was going with it all and how long he had left to go. You were like going into yourself with, with like numbing your emotions out on your, you know, do you see what I mean? We we went into our own isolation. Yeah, I think that that really, really happened with me and Greg, I would say, that um, I think we own went into our own little internal yeah. bubbles Um and I, I became really aware that of how much I was drinking, but I didn't vocalise it to him because I didn't want him to see. Because I didn't want him to try to stop it. If I'm honest, I, I felt like this is all I've got. I, I don't have my support network. I'm basically in charge of everything. I'm looking after everybody. I need something, and so that's when, like, I. I really did enter into my own little bubble where I would hide bottles. I was hiding bottles of alcohol that came into the house. I was hiding the empty bottles so he couldn't see how much I was drinking. I was hiding the glasses that I was drinking from. So I would have a glass maybe really early in the day, maybe at like, I don't know. In my head, it got to 10 a.m. of like that's an acceptable time to have a glass of Prosecco. And at 10am was acceptable in the lockdown. And then I would be, you know, I'd hear, I'd hear people coming down the stairs and I would like <laughs> try and like hide it behind cookery books in the kitchen or like put it in cup, put it back in the glass cupboard and hope that he wouldn't open the door to see that there was a full glass in yeah. the glasses cupboard. And like thinking of an excuse of like, if he did open it, what would I say? Like, why would it be there? And that was this weird little bubble that I had in my head of, it was just me, me against the world. You know, yeah, I think I just 
turned inwards and was trying to cope in this situation on my own and and alcohol was my my refuge in that and I definitely didn't want to stop and I knew that Greg if he witnessed a lot of stuff that he would have really called me out on it and I didn't want to and I know if he had have done I would have argued with him yeah I really would have done we'd have we'd have had a big old row I imagine I don't really like being told what to do (laughs) and um yeah that that would that would have gone down badly this is why we got on so well when we met because both very honest from the beginning I love how transparent you are and the fact that you didn't want him to know because he would tell you not to do it or stop you doing it is so brutally honest and I can really relate to that and that's why I think a lot of us do this hiding business because not only is the shame and the stigma and the guilt in there is also the fact that it's the you know what now now you've called me out. What does that mean? Does that mean that yeah. I've found out and I'm going to have to do something about it? And and there's the denial because you don't want to do anything about it. You know, no, I had I had absolutely no interest in doing anything about it yeah. at all because I think also because Greg was the one who had terminal cancer he was actually very protected in a lot of ways because he was the epicenter of everything. And then the layers of support kind of ripple out from that of like who, so, and you never rely on people inwards. You only rely on people who are outside of in your next ripple out. So I couldn't, I couldn't rely on him. I had to rely on people like my family, my friends, but they were taken away from me. I couldn't rely on my children because they're my kids. They're tiny that's not appropriate. And I was having to deal with all of it, like looking after the kids, looking after him as he was getting iller and iller. And I I felt like I couldn't have that one thing taken away from me. And I wouldn't have wanted to hear that from him because I would have felt like, well, I'm looking after you. Who's looking after me? Yeah. I've got fucking nobody to look after me here. Um, And like, you know, not just emotionally or physically, but like, I, I remember at that time, all I wanted to do was hug my mum, as I'm sure, you know, as I'm sure many people did, that that was like this feeling, but I wanted to be a child. I wanted to feel like I just want someone to look after me. I want someone to cook me some dinner and put me to bed and say, it's going to be okay. You don't have to worry. You just go and relax. And like, just go and listen to music in my bedroom on my own, like a teenager. And I couldn't, I had to be this like super responsible adult that kind of, I did some writing recently about that time where I uh, referred to myself as the perennial um, cheerleader, because it was like, I had to kind of like keep spirits up and like keep everyone going. And when Greg was feeling like really stressed and really down, I had to be kind of like, it's okay. Everything's fine. And like with the kids as well, they were obviously worried about what was going on and they were bored and just annoyed. And and I was buoyant for everyone else. And I felt like, I don't know, maybe that's why like my drink of choice at that point was Prosecco, because it was like this bubbly, buoyant thing that kind of kept me up. It was bubbling me up with energy. But as you said in the beginning as well about that that um, word Prosecco, it, it almost makes it okay. If it was like triple gin and tonic, <laughs> it, it might sound quite different. But do you know what? 
I mean, as you know, um, she's had cancer three times. And uh, when I used to go to the hospital uh, and sit there, uh, or go home and she would be convalescing and whatever. It, no yeah. one really ever, ever asked how I was. So I really hear you there. And you, well, I was the one that was making sure the kids were okay and you know, everything was running fine uh, and that she was okay. But it was me that I had to go to bed and, and worry and stuff. And it, it, as I said before, alcohol is amazing at doing its job and that's blunting all the emotions out yeah. but it's short so short lived that you know it it works in the beginning but an hour on and then you sort of coming back to earth it's like oh god i can't drink too much because i've got this to do later or this tomorrow and it's a very short fix isn't it did you find that oh absolutely and i uh, and that is the worrying thing about it is because because it is a short fix especially if you're starting drinking at 10 a.m. By the time you get to lunchtime, you're like, oh, I'm exhausted. You know, your your energy's dipped. You've got so many hours left of the day that you're like, well, I need some more. I need a top up. I need a top up. I need a top up. And um, during that lockdown, I remember I was putting my children to bed and obviously, you know, they were going to bed later. I was putting my children to bed. I remember like going up and doing stories with a glass, you know, with a flute of Prosecco uh, on the on their bedside table. And I remember not being able to read the words. And I couldn't, I couldn't quite read them. I couldn't quite see. Because at that point, I mean, I'm not like when we talked to you to talk about like, ha- you know, the volume that you would drink. Yeah. I can't, I can't drink that volume. It would it was wasn't like oh I'm drinking six bottles a day nothing like that at all but how it processed itself in my body was that I didn't have to drink a lot it was just the kind of the longevity of it from like morning to early evening was like enough to keep me going but also keep me numb and and it was at those bedtimes you know and bedtimes of kids are just hard so hard and and I was doing all of the bedtimes myself and then because I knew I would have to I'd be the one getting up my daughter my youngest daughter at that point was like such an early bed there were mornings she was getting up at half past four my eldest daughter was is a real night owl so she'd be going to bed at like 10 half past 10 and I'd be doing the mornings and the evenings and in the middle looking after everybody and uh, I would get I would be getting to that bedtime thinking I just need this to end. I just need to go to bed. I just, I just need, and I never had a problem sleeping. I was just like in bed, done, out. And then, uh, and then obviously it would start again that, you know, that kind of that groundhog day again, but the weather was nice again and we had nothing to do. And it was, that was my, that was a coping mechanism that was, that I saw reflected back on me as well, you know, on social media, people who weren't in my situation were doing the same. It wasn't, it wasn't like I was alone thinking, fuck, I'm in a really, you know, precarious situation here. Everyone else is doing this, but I'm doing this. It was like, we're all in this together. Everyone's in this. And there is such validation in that. I know it it was crazy times. How was Greg's health then? At this point, was he really declining because he wasn't having treatment? Uh, I I would say that he was, do you know what? For the majority of Greg's illness after his diagnosis, he was very well, except for the effects of chemo. So the fact that he wasn't on chemo 
made him actually better. Like he, he, he wasn't, I mean, he was exhausted and he was losing weight. Again, I didn't notice it really that much because I was with him every day, all day. It was only when people then saw him, they were like, oh, he, he's lost some weight. Um, and obviously losing weight is not a good sign in cancer because it probably means that there is more cancer in you. And we, we then had, you know, our, and after that, we never saw Greg's oncologist again. Like we never saw him again. Everything was done on but on phone. So Greg then did go for a scan after that first six month lockdown where we were shielding for six months and we just didn't leave the house for six months. Which now, when you say it, God, I get claustrophobic after a Saturday afternoon. It's the <laughs> thought of like six months in my and you know, and I we don't live in a big house. We live in a two bedroom open plan house. Yeah. It is small. <laughs> so like we are literally on top of each other. I think about that now. I just, I can't believe that. But he, yeah, he had a scan afterwards and we were told on Zoom that the cancer had spread to his liver in the lockdown, which was a very, very surreal moment to be watching. That's the last time I actually physically saw Greg's oncologist was on Zoom and he was obviously probably in his daughter's bedroom, which made the whole thing so much more surreal to yeah. be told. Like, And, you know, in the cancer world as well, if you know anything about oncology, you know that when things move to the liver, yeah. like that's that's the beginning of the end in, in many, many cases. So to be so, suddenly witnessing your, on, your oncologist in like a pink bedroom with like these stickers all over the wall behind him mm. telling you that the cancer spread to his liver and you're having to like watch your own reaction on the screen because mm. obviously like you can see yourself and you're having to kind of oh, that's weird act. and i was sat next to greg so i was watching greg's reaction yeah. on the screen it was like an episode of black mirror yeah of like the, it was almost like i was floating out of my own body of like this is fucked this yeah. this is madness and i think as as that, you know, as the pandemic carried on and then we were kind of in and out and in and out of lockdowns, Greg's health did start to deteriorate and then he was put back on treatment. But yeah, that drinking kind of continued. And but but I started to realise uh, as it started to become more obvious that Greg really didn't have very long left, something kicked in in me. And I think it was probably my maternal instinct which was, I'm going to be alone soon with these girls. And they do not need a, an alcoholic mother. I don't, I don't believe I'm an, I was ever an alcoholic. I don't believe I was an alcoholic or I, I believed I had quite disordered thinking about alcohol because of circumstance. But mm. um, my best friend is, was an alcoholic and he's eight years sober and it was really interesting to have him on the end of the phone, you know, because he was the only person that I was telling about the alcohol. And because he had like years in AA, he was a sponsor. He's heard and seen it all and was like, he, there was no judgment coming for him. So I felt I could tell him. And he was telling me stories about, well, you know, you think when people think about alcoholics, they think about homeless people, like drinking neat bottles of vodka for breakfast. And he said, no, like you go to AA, you're talking about the middle class women who uh, are 
going to Waitrose and then have to pop to the toilets to just quick, quickly swig the gin that's in their bag. Yeah. That's where those people are. Yeah. And that was a real wake up call for me because I was like, who's, I don't believe I've got an, um, an addictive personality, but I was like, I'm only human. Like if you put enough stuff of this stuff in your body, that it wins, you know, biology wins. And it's the same with Greg, like people thinking, oh, you know, you can do this. It's not positive thinking is not going to cure you. Biology wins. And it's, it's the same with alcohol. Like if you put enough in it, your body will crave it more and more and more and it will win. And and I think that was, I just thought about my girls and just thought, fuck, like I've, if anything, I've got to be on my top game when yeah. this happens, like not literally at the bottom. So I made the decision to um, not have any alcohol in the house. I told everybody to not buy me any alcohol at all, not to come round with um, anything gifts nothing but did you so did you stop straight away yeah I did um and then I went for a good couple of months without anything and it was and it was fine it was actually fine you know I I most certainly wasn't drinking enough at all for for there to be like a withdrawal situation at all like I said it wasn't it wasn't really the volume that that I was drinking that was the problem it was the consistency it, it it was it was the consistency yeah and and the intention yeah. I think that for me was the real wake up call. And then when I did have those months where I didn't drink, I realized it was the intention that was that was the problem. Yeah. And then um and then Greg died uh last year, September 2021. And and that was really uh I can't really remember loads about that time, to be honest. My mind's blanked it out, but I know that. Um, I, I, again, I was like, okay, this is a dangerous time for me. I know that I need to just not have it in the house. That Because that for me was my problem. To go out with friends and have a glass of wine over dinner, lovely. I, like I, I, my intention with that was was like kind of like how I was when I was a teenager or like younger, that it was the intention was different. It was sociable. It was fine. When I have alcohol in the house, it's game over. It's like it changes something in me. And then it's about like the obliteration of feelings, like that whole thing of like being on your own now in the house, having to cook dinner with no one to talk to, you know, the normal arguments about, you know, making three dinners for three different people because no one likes the same thing. And that loneliness in the evening. I just knew that that was, that's dangerous for me. So I've still... I've not had, not had alcohol in the house since. Wow. <clears throat> and um, when Greg died, what was the funeral like? Because when my mum died, her partner, John, he had arranged like an afternoon tea in the pub. And it was beautiful. You know, yeah. there were like China crockery. It was so lovely when we all got there. And I looked at her and I thought, you know what? I, I can't handle a cup. I don't want this. I want to get drunk. <laughs> Yeah. So I went up to the barmaid and I said, look, I know this is meant to be like an afternoon tea, but if I give you my card, can you just keep the bar open? And I I was like an animal. Like really? literally I was drinking everything in sight to just 
get rid of the emotions of the last, not even on the day, it was the build-up to the funeral, you know, all all those emotions and the upset. But I was with mum when she died as well. I held her hand when she took her last breath and then she died, you know, in from for her, she had me and John with her, but it was on a Sunday and she couldn't be taken away for a few hours and John wouldn't cover her over. So many things that that, um, made me react. So actually, it was almost like, right, you've got to this bit of this traumatic experience. Now you can let go. Oh, my God. It it was like chaos. Yeah. I Griggs' funeral was, um, I think some people were afraid that it was going to be, a family member was a bit worried and said, Afterwards, they were like, oh, it was really lovely, but I was afraid it was going to be a carnival or, a, I don't know, a circus, she referred it to. Because because Greg was in um, a band, as he would refer to them, a moderately famous band, <laughs> um, uh, he, and it was uh, an open funeral. We were, you know, really worried about how many people were going to turn up. And so we we booked a music venue that was really important to Greg and the band, as for the wake that was there. so it had two two bars we hired like street food to have in the garden there because we were thinking this is going to be like a big a big thing and and it was I think we had about oh I don't know I think maybe people told me they thought there was about 700 people 800 people at his funeral and then when we went back to the wake it was there was a lot of celebration there like we'd got our children uh so children were definitely invited it was really important to me that in particular that my daughters were there and we had got them to make cookies to sell to raise money for charity there and they had their own cookie stand and so there was uh we'd had lights put up and there was bunting so there there was like a real celebration feel the kids were up on the stage dancing they were offering out like for dance battles, all the adults. And I think, and also there is that thing of the wake, isn't there? Where it's like this collective. <sighs> yeah. Oh, and that feeling of like, there's two bars open. I mean, people could not offer me a drink quick enough. It was, it was the last time that I, I well, I can't remember the last time I saw so many adults drunk, like really drunk. Um, and I, I, there was lots of that stuff of like my fact, like the men in my family did this thing, which I've seen at other funerals, which is like the propping up of the bar, which is they're kind of holding court at the bar as like, almost like as hosts, I suppose. Yeah. I, I you know, I didn't stop talking for 12 hours and I lost my voice for about two weeks afterwards because I was like the ultimate I was like the widow. So I was the the ultimate host. It was a bit like being the bride at a wedding. Everyone wanted to talk to me. So they did like their host bit at the bar. So they were, you know, I saw them like doing that thing with the arms around people that they didn't know, chatting, buying rounds in at the bar. And I think, you know, my brother, I think drunk more than he's drunk possibly in his life and ended up like he didn't even, he couldn't even get up the next day. He he was he was so ill, so ill. But there is this, you know, maybe it is like weddings as well. This thing, it's like the the celebration, the commiseration. It's this thing of we're all together. Let's buy each other a drink. But maybe more so at a funeral because we don't quite know how to deal with those emotions. Yeah. And I think people didn't know how to deal with me 
because you know what do you say after oh right your husband's just died we were at his funeral um I don't know what to say to you but what I can do is buy you a drink yeah and you know we don't know how to talk we don't know we don't know how to do funerals we don't know how to do death we don't know how to do grief and I think you know the 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 wine carried on coming after Greg died when people dropped stuff at our house which was very very often there was the wine there was the Prosecco again it's that thing of like I don't know what to do I'm going to give you some flowers I'm going to give you some wine and it is it's a you're very very vulnerable in grief you're very vulnerable even though I know I'm very I know I'm a mentally strong person I know that I've got a really great family and support network but I'm vulnerable I'm really vulnerable and and I had to you know I I definitely poured some of it down the sink and it made me then think of like oh my god like this is like a film me like my husband's died and I'm pouring bottles of wine because I can't it's so dangerous for me and I thought how is this my life how have I got to this but I I this is what I try to do in my writing is is about trying to normalize things to do with grief so that maybe we can have some better conversations about it rather than relying on relying on gestures that are not particularly helpful for people because I I don't know how helpful alcohol is in grief. Well, it's not. It's not, it's not helpful. It, it, like you said, it's short term. It's that it could be that like numbing, but that's the thing. When you push stuff down, that doesn't make it go away. That stuff is still there and it will just come out later and it will come back harder and with three heads. And as you said earlier about the Groundhog Day, what it does, it comes back with three heads so what is the solution to drink more to make it go away again yeah and it pushes it to the back then it comes back it's it's a forever it's the hamster wheel again of alcohol um i've got a friend actually whose wife passed away from cancer when she was 38 and he cannot drink at all because as soon as he drinks it brings it all up so he manages his emotions by not drinking because he knows that if he does they will be 50 times worse. Yeah, so yeah, I understand that. People might think it's in denial there, but he's managing his emotions a lot better than if he was to drink because it's more up and down then. Yeah, it's it's without these certain crutches, it most certainly is harder because you're forced to you're forced to face all your demons. You're forced yeah. to sit in those emotions, which can be staggeringly hard and to not reach to you know, to distract, to constantly distract, to numb, to actually sit in them is hard. But I, I think that it is the better route yeah. because there is some pro there's processing, even if it's slow and it's one step, two steps back, it, it's honest, it's real. And there will be, whether you think you are or not, there is, there's processing going on and there is healing going on, even though it's really painful. And hopefully, you know, I'm really, I'm really you know, still knee deep in all of this, that actually this will set me in good stead for years down the line, rather than like pushing it down, pushing it down, really numbing out with with alcohol or food or shopping or, you know, all all the classics of how people numb out to difficult emotions. I find that 
writing about stuff is is kind of my way of trying to process that stuff which is um it's definitely harder but you know i i again i think about my girls and i think i don't have i don't want to waste i don't want to waste these years you know if anything greg's death his illness and you know those years that we had when he was ill and his his death led me to really know in my bones that this is all so fucking short and and i've got to live a good life and i don't want my life to be like a half life and i don't want my children's only parent left to be this kind of like a shambles of a person like a like a shadow of their her former self i want them to have a, the best version of me that they can that they can have and it's also important to say that you want to be the best version of yourself as well yeah oh god yeah prime do you know what primarily for me yeah. i i want to live i i promised myself when greg was really ill that i wouldn't die with him and i'm this is all part of me keeping that promise to myself because for what you've been through as well is really traumatic so i love your emotional intelligence and i think that's when we met we we connected so immediately because I think I was talking to you about, and it's on absolutely no comparison to what you've been through, but the the loss and the grief that people feel if they've had a long relationship with alcohol. And for me, it was a 40 year love hate affair. Yeah. Uh, and when, when I stopped it, I was floundering around thinking, I don't know what to do with myself. You know, and this is where community came in. And it, I always say now, like, by the time this is aired, I would have had my fifth event, sober event. Uh, and there's three bands there, uh, different bands, a magician, uh, and all people from all walks of life coming together. Like what you said um, about the AA guy who was a sponsor, he said, you know, it's your middle-aged person. There's so many different people coming to the event. And finding a community is so important in life anyway. People who yeah. understand you and you can articulate your problems to and share. And that's what I found when we met. We just sat down, had a cup of coffee and just rambled off. And I, this is why I wanted to get you on because I love the way you think. You think in such a way that I've just got goosebumps and I'm sure <laughs> people listening to this will feel the same. So, darling, where are you now in your life? Do you mean in general or with alcohol? Both, really. Both. Um, I think that I am in a much, much better place, to do, particularly to do with alcohol, because it's not that I don't ever drink, but I, I still don't have alcohol in the house. And I know that for me, at this moment in time, that's that's how it's staying like there's no good to come of anything else but if i'm if i'm out with friends if we go for a meal um yeah i'll have i'll have one glass of wine possibly two, two is my absolute limit i that's my my sweet spot and that and that's it and that's not very regular um in itself but it, it's that in it, like i said it's that intention when i have that glass of wine it's with friends we're chatting it's sociable it's fun the intention isn't I'm hiding it from people and it's about obliteration. So I think I'm in a really good place with that in my life. Uh, huh, I uh, Up and down, I would say. I think that grief is a, is a funny beast. 
it really is and i think those first those first days of grief are are really really fucking hard but you i think you're in some shock even if you know someone's going to die your body and your mind protect you by keeping you kind of wrapped in this little bubble a little bit and i found that when i got to about 6 months so greg's been dead about 8 months now i think when i got to about 6 months that's when the crying began i didn't really cry I, I cried when Greg died and like his funeral and a, and a bit after that. But after that, that wasn't my go. My, my emotion wasn't sadness. It wasn't my go-to emotion. And now, and now it is. So it's kind of constantly changing and evolving and, you know, trying to work out how to be a solo parent. That's, that's actually, you know, people don't tell you that as well about grief, that you're not just thinking about the loss. You're thinking about what you've gained of, you know, I've gained the title of solo parent and what the fuck does that, how am I going to navigate that, this new life that I've got? And widow. And widow, yeah. Um, I, I, do you know what? I don't know if I've really had the time or space to really think about that because that very much relates to like a partnership, a relationship. And my life has since Greg died has been so preoccupied with my children as as of course it is that the term widow relates you know I'm in no way in a mental space to think about uh like dating or potential partners like my mind is just fucked like it's it's so all over the place (laughs) the thought of like I just I wouldn't want to put that on anybody Um, (laughs) but yeah so I I don't think I've really had the time to think about what the widow bit means to me yeah but um yeah I'm writing a book at the moment and uh it's again that's like that you know I've had to create new crutches and uh, to lean on mm. we we need these systems don't we 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 need these these tools in our toolbox to get us through hard times and writing is most certainly one of mine so to actually write a book even though it is incredibly hard it's it's a crutch for me to lean on uh, and you look at the power of Deb's bow babe of uh, the last few weeks I mean she's a force in herself but since she stopped treatment you know oh, yeah getting a dame hood uh i mean and the way she still carries herself knowing that her days are numbered the power of that and her book and uh, she's raised millions isn't she yeah and i i know how much that would mean to her like through knowing her personally but also through knowing you know the the messages that when when we announced publicly that Greg was in hospice and you know he had weeks to live the the messages that we got that he could actually read mm. was uh, it was kind it was kind of like being at your own funeral yeah. where you actually got to see what people thought of you and i mean what a thing what a thing to know how many people you have had an impact on yeah and i know that you know, this is just harrowing for her, for her family. But there is sol- there is some solace in that, in that knowing that those things happened. Yeah, she's uh, she's great. She's that energy of hers is uh, is incredible. Uh, and that will go on after as well. And I'm just so grateful, Stacey. Again, 
I like to keep these around an hour and I could talk to you for another hour. <laughs> you were very infectious. Um, so That's I'm a lovely so, compliment. Yeah, you, you're just so honest. Uh, and I think people will really get a lot from the last hour that you've shared with us. So I'm so grateful to you. Oh, well, thank thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk about it. Um, I think it's, you know, grieving is something that we are all going to experience whether we like it or not. And, you know, we'll, if we're lucky, we'll experience it many, many, many times, you know, which is a weird thing to say, but if we're lucky to love people yeah, and we live a long life, we will grieve many times. And I think if we can open up these dialogues about grieving and the, um, and things that surround it, it, it can be helpful to all of us. Like you said, bloody big hell. stuff, what you, big what, stuff. What, what are you doing to me? I'm <laughs> goosebumps galore here. So thank you so much, and I'm glad you're okay. Uh, and I hope that we can meet again soon. Absolutely. But I'm going to keep a whole day free. Oh, yeah, we need that time, don't we? Me too. All right. Thank you so much, Stacey. <laughs> thank you, Dave. Take care. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can now download my app, Sober Dave, on the Apple and Google Play Store. And on there, you will find lots of tutorials, tips and support to help you stop drinking. And there are also meditation audios, food plans and chat forums. You can also find me on Instagram at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. But until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.